I'm your host, Gerald, and welcome to UWE's Financial Technology Podcast Series, where we speak to fintech industry experts and academics. I am joined by Jerry from UWE, my co-host. Hello, I'm Jerry. Hello. And David Henderson, our guest for today. Hi, David. Hi, guys. How are you doing? Great, great. Good, good. David is one of our fintech lecturers at UWE, an advisor for several fintech startups, and the head of pensions at Penny, a fintech pension tracking platform. <laughs> Hi, David. Thank you for joining us today, David. No, great to be here. Um, and honored to be on the first of your podcast as well. It's an honor to have you here. Yes. It's really great to uh, speak to you outside our lectures and have you as our first guest, really. What we're going to do today is hear more about your fintech and pension journey and a little bit about the current state of the pension industry in the UK. As I recall, you were in Hargreaves Lansdowne for about 20 years. Do tell us about that to start things off. Yes, yeah, so I joined Hargreaves Lansdowne pretty much straight out of university mm-hmm. on the basis that I had a friend working there who said, look, come and work at this company. It's super interesting, really fast growing. You get access to the founders. And that was pretty much it. I didn't really know much else about the business. So I started there, as most people did as a graduate, where you'd either start off on the help desk or in the administration team. And I remember going in, in in the morning, you were told to read a, a leaflet about pensions. And that afternoon, you're on the phone speaking to clients which in itself was pretty daunting. And these days just wouldn't be possible. Uh, it's way more complex these days, but that's how it was. So I, was, I started there 19, 20 years ago in a pensions team on the phone and really just worked my way up through the business. So I had lots of access to different parts of the business and enjoyed it immensely. Great, great, great. And um, from a recall, you moved from different positions over the 20 years. How was that for you? Yeah, so the great thing about working at Harvey Sandstone at that time was there was so much going on. So there's so many different opportunities, whether it's in the advice department or in the workplace, pensions, corporate teams, marketing. There's always something else going on. And we we're always trying to be first to market and offer the best service for our clients. So you were never short of things to do and never short of opportunities. And it was the kind of place that I really loved because if you just got stuck and worked as many hours as you possibly could, you would be rewarded for that in terms of your career and you know financially as well. So it was, it was a great place to be. I worked in pensions division primarily. So as I said, started off on the help desk. You'd be speaking to some days up to 100 clients a day, depending on the time of year it is. So you learn a lot in terms of what clients are after, what the service you should be offering. I then became head of the pensions sort of contact side of things. So all the calls, emails, any contact coming in, that was under, under my remit. And then worked my way up to head of pensions. So as head of pensions, you're, you're doing all of, all of what I've just mentioned, but also looking at sort of strategic approach for the pensions division going forward, marketing, risk, compliance, you know, looking at what trends are coming out of the industry to make sure that HL is at the forefront there. So a lot of different exposure, a lot of experience. Um, I was lucky enough to work on the advice side as, as well. So we set up a telephone advice team at the time. So Traditionally, when you think about financial advisor, most people think about someone coming out of the house with a briefcase, mm-hmm. some papers right. on the desk, you know, having a cup yeah. of tea and cake and, and sorting out the finances. And that would maybe happen once a year. And that still happens. And that's right for, for some people. But we spotted a gap in the market, which was 
that there were people who were time poor but still needed advice and didn't really need an advisor coming to their house. So we set up a telephone advice team as a way of making advice slicker and cheaper and more accessible for more clients as well. And that was really rewarding, in fact, to see some of the, the people that were already on the help desk, for example, that we gave a sort of career path to to become advisors. So that was a really interesting time for the business as well. Mm, great. So about some of your clients that are regarding their pensions. So what, what sort of things do they tend to look for when about in pensions in general? Because from what I understand, pensions is typically if you work in a company, the company will usually like put aside some money from your income as well. Is that is my society correct or is it different? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, you, you're pretty much right there. So sort of reeling back to when I first started at Hargley Sandstone, that was when there was something that just been introduced by the government called stakeholder pensions. And that was their way of encouraging everyone to pay into their own pension provisions. So it was pretty straightforward. You had an allowance of £3,600. Everyone had that. And you would get tax relief on your contributions. So it's a really simple message. And it was a way of sort of getting people to start investing in pensions. Then preceding that came along, um, sorry, following that came SIPs, so self-invested personal pensions. And they're a bit more complicated or generally were at the time and were seen as something for more sophisticated investors. But basically what they allowed you to do was invest in funds and individual equities as you would through a trading account, but within your pension. That's kind of the, where the market is these days, that SIPs have become much more popular, much easier to understand, much easier to manage. And that's HL's main offering. The main thing with pensions is people who just don't engage with pensions enough. It's something mm. that you either don't want to look at because you don't want to think, I'm getting old, so <laughs> I'll just pull up to one side because right. I'm 40, that's not old, you know, or I'm 60, I've still got, I'm not old. So mm. there's that, people bury their heads in the sand. And sometimes the figures that are projected, like you need to save X amount, whether it's 12, 14% recommended a month of your salary, that's quite a daunting figure. So people, mm. again, bury their heads in the sand. But about 10 years ago, something came in the UK called enrollment, which was a way of saying, look, everyone needs to pay into a pension. Your employer will pay in a fixed amount and you will pay in amounts on top of that, whether it's matching or a variation of that. And that's great because that's actually put 10 million more people into the pension system and it's getting a more engaged the employers are taking more engagement, more involvement. And that's a good thing. If it's helping fill that gap where people are trying to save the future, fantastic. Okay. Why would people be investing pensions? So say like, I have this sum of money, but I want to use it now rather. I might not even consider in the future, but like, why though? Why invest in pension is to to, to create a better retirement or stability for yourself in the future. If though, if you are, I I mean, I know how young you guys are. You're a lot younger than me. Uh, But if you were saying for your first property, and you're not going to save in a pension because once money's in a pension, money's in a pension is locked away. That's the idea behind it. So you get the sort of compounded growth, et cetera, all your, each, each year you put more and more away. And that's the idea behind it. It's just a big pot of money that stays out of the way until you retire, but you do engage in it in that time. If you're saving for your first first property or for a car or just for a holiday, then yeah, pension, pensions is not what you're looking at. So it's a long-term savings vehicle with tax incentives to help you save for the future. Okay, so comparing to, say, like stocks, for example, then is different there? Uh, no, so this is, yeah, this is, you kind of just hit the nail on the head with some of my popular misconceptions there, Jerry. So when you often hear people say, oh, I'm not investing in a pension again, I lost all my money, it didn't perform badly, it performed badly. That's not the pension, that's where you invested. So within a pension, you can invest in stocks, you can invest in funds. Pension is just the wrapper that fits mm-hmm. in. So you can invest in stocks. 
and shares individually outside of the pension, but you can also do it inside the pension. Okay. Does that make sense? Have I explained it? Yeah, that, that, makes, that makes a lot more sense to me then. <laughs> so okay, it's, sort, it's sort of just an umbrella term, isn't it? That's it. It's exactly, that's the right term, Terry. So umbrella. So another umbrella you have is an ISA, or you have a lifetime ISA as well. These are just umbrellas with different tax incentives to encourage people to save for the future. Great. Um, so from your experience within Hargreaves Lansdowne, what made you decide to transition or play a bigger role in fintech then? Um, I think uh, thing at working HR, as I said, is always pretty uh, innovative, entrepreneurial. So you always had that sort of um, interest in new ideas, new ways of working. Traditionally, right. HR was probably more on the marketing side of things because HR was kind of seen as this big marketing beast in, in the past. Now it probably sees itself as a tech company. Um, for me, sort of getting into more of the fintech space was um, pretty much because I was, we set up a tech hub in Warsaw in Poland, and I was asked to run that, so I was asked to go and set that up. So it's was, it was quite a daunting daunting task, just walking into a room and saying, you've got a remit from Ireland to India about where we're going to set up a tech hub. We're doing it because we need to take on more, um, more developers, more tech talent, because we can't recruit enough in the region at the moment, at that time. It's taken us too long to backfill. So can you go do that? I'll come on to that later. But when, when I was in Warsaw, one of the places that I went was called the Warsaw Hub. And that was basically a space for entrepreneurs, innovators, investors, corporate startups, all to engage. And there's a big community there. So when I came back, to, and I thought that was absolutely fantastic. I went to quite a few events there. It was really interesting to see the partnerships that were coming out of there. And when I came back to Bristol, I started sort of exploring what was on the what was on the doorstep here, and and that really got me into the sort of the fintech space and and connecting with different organisations, groups, startups, etc. So is this part of the reason why you left? Do you decided to leave Hargreaves Lansdowne then? Um, one of, yeah. I mean, one of the other reasons was I was there almost 20 years. So for 15 of those years, I'd say I, I absolutely loved it. I absolutely had a, had a blast. And I loved just working as many hours as I could, as I said. Um, but things change, you know, and organizations change. And for me, I just think it didn't have the same buzzer. HR is still a fantastic company, but I just felt time to go off and do something else. And it was, I was already in my last years at HR. I was already had my foot out the door, so to speak, in terms of being engaging with different companies, organizations, the startup community, fintech. I'd already been part of Fintech West. So it just seemed like the natural thing to do and something that was of more interest to me going forward as well. So yeah, I've loved every minute of it since I've left. Um, enjoyed my time there, but also enjoyed doing something new since leaving. Would you then uh, advise younger generations to give Hargreaves Land some try? Or? Yes, because it's a fantastic company. It's a FTSE 100 company. It's a huge success story from Bristol. And it's still a market leader. Last time I checked, it's like 40% market share in the market it's operating in. And it's got huge opportunities. Um, there's more competition now. The company's bigger. I think there's nearly 2,000 people there. So yeah, when I first started, there was maybe 300 people. So you could argue it's easier to, to um, sort of progress. But I still think the same attributes are there. If you've got 2,000 people or 300, you still need to you know, work hard, come up with ideas and, and show your work. But yeah, definitely a great place to start for people to go and start a career. It looks good on the CV. You'll gain a lot of experience, have a lot of exposure across the industry as well. So yeah, definitely still recommend it. It's great. It's great. Yeah. Hmm. Maybe we should consider that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put in a good word for you. Oh, cheers. Thank you. Thanks for that. <laughs> 
So after Hargreaves Lansdowne, you then progressed to uh, UWE or did you stay in the FinTech advisory role for a while? Yeah, so after leaving HL, um, I'd already been working with a number of startups who'd approached me when I was at HL. So my last role at Hargreaves Lansdowne was head of innovation and that obviously attracts people um, who are looking for advice or looking to partner with HL or just wondering how they get into, you know, sort of growing business. So I'd already mm. made quite a few connections there. I was speaking with a number of startups and that's kind of the route that it took me. When I left HL, I was asked to become an advisor with a couple of those and just found it a really interesting thing to do. Speaking with lots of different companies, learning about their journeys and providing support where I could. Um, on the back of that, I was then approached by by UWE to come at University of West of England to come along and be initially it was meant to be an associate lecturer, which I thought was quite a cushy gig. I was I just thought I was going to be sitting in the corner of a room with a cup of coffee and adding my tuppence every five minutes. Uh, but it turned out to be like, you know, the full full lecturer, so to speak. So I thought that was quite a good, interesting thing to do in the sense that it actually kept me on my toes because I felt that I had to be staying on top of what's going on in the fintech environment, fintech news each week. So I found it really interesting to do. And also, one of the good things about UE is we've got such a, a good international base of students that I was learning every week as well. I mean, you, you guys will know this, but we had students from Asia, Africa, different parts of Europe and, and beyond. So there's propositions there that whilst we'd maybe have, this is what we're going to talk about this week, it could go off in different tangents and examples of different companies that we'd never heard of that were doing great things would come up. So yeah, it's super interesting and really rewarding as well. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of where it, where it's at at the moment. Thank you, David. Right, and it, it's been quite the journey um, having to go through your lectures and and meeting so many different types of uh, industry experts throughout the fintech industry, and then hand rubbing shoulders with them and then re speaking to them. How many fintech startups were you able to sort of reach out and advise and 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 what do they request uh, for you to advise on, on the, the financial aspect, the pension aspect, or the tech aspect? Um, yeah, so there's, I think there's a balance here. And I, sp- I spoke to someone that I knew quite well who'd kind of broken away from corporate life and was advising early stage startups. He's now more in the sort of web free crypto side of things, but he gave me some really good advice that you're kind of looking at a maximum of 10. That you're going to be working with in terms of your time, your expertise, uh, and being able to add value. So I've worked across the year, probably gone up to about six or so. Um, mm-hmm. And I think the, the hardest thing, the hardest thing is managing your time and managing that headspace. That's from different from being in a corporate environment where, although you might go from meeting to meeting and it might be about different things, you kind of still focus towards the same goal. When you're doing the advisory work and you're working with lots of different companies, it's hard sometimes to get that headspace right from because um, each one's got got a different problem, might be in a slightly different market as well. Mm. So that's, I mean, that's that's a challenge, but it's also really interesting as well. And in terms of your question about where's the value that you can add there, well, I think yeah. for me, it's not so much as sort mm. of going in and saying, "Here's a structured plan and here's my approach." It's more about, I mean, I've, I was in the industry, I've been in the industry for 20 years, so I've got lots of good connections. Um, I can offer lots of good advice in terms of the things that I've seen work in the past and things that haven't. A good, good standing board in terms of experience. I think there's a lot that startups know in terms of um, very enthusiastic about how to get to market, new technologies, et cetera. But there's things that they just don't know they don't know, and that's specifically around things like risk and compliance 
And it's those areas that I think are, are most beneficial sometimes, just, you know, just sort of tracking back and saying, have you considered this? Do you know the implications of that? And making sure that they don't overstep the boundary um, that could mm -hmm. cause issues for, for themselves or for the, for the users. Right. So I think it's to make sure, you know, sort of having good connections, being able to open doors, whether that's for funding, partnerships, or, mm -hmm. you know, just advice, and also just be a general sounding board. Okay. Right, right. That's, I think it's really good for, for fintech startups starting a new business and a new company um, in such a space where it's so rapidly growing, right? Someone to scrutinize or sort of just poke holes in the business model so they can fill it just in case, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Definitely of value in every company. I think it... I think it's a good idea for companies that are doing that to try and create a little bench, mm -hmm. so to speak. So bring in people who've got different experience and different backgrounds within the industry um, that can all help complement each other and also mm -hmm. all feed in and help help you develop your proposition better. And mm -hmm. agree, agree. I'm curious, have there been any like fintech startups that stood out to you immediately, or have there been like currently even since uh, since how many years ago that you left Harkus and started advising adv uh, advising people? Mm, have there been any standouts? Well, I'm obviously going to plug the ones that I'm working for. Yeah. <laughs> of course, yes. Um, yeah, thanks. Thanks for the tap in there, Jerry. So <laughs> I think the most, yeah, it's two really, well, there's a few interesting ones. So for different reasons. So Penny, um, where I'm head of pensions working with them, that's a super interesting one because it's it's a big problem they're trying to solve and they're going about it in a more unique way than lots of companies so in the uk we went back to that story before where i said 10 million more people have joined pension schemes in the last maybe more than 10 million but a lot of people joined pension schemes in the last 10 years following auto enrollment and that's great but what that has also meant is that as people change jobs they've accrued lots of these different pension pots where so you go you go and start a job for example jerry um mm. You work there for six months, you pay into the pension, your employer pays into the pension. Six months later, you, you say, I'm off, I'm getting somewhere else. And you repeat that process every six months. You've then got lots of different small pots all built up. Mm. But on their own, you kind of think, oh, it's not that much. I don't need to worry about that. Add them all up and it makes a big difference. And you, it's needing to make sure that you track them down as well. So that's what Penny do. They track down people's lost pensions, pensions oh. that they've either forgotten about because they've moved house or they were never engaged with in the first place because perhaps the company or their employer didn't really do a good job of engaging with them. So Penny automatically traces those down for the individuals, for the users. So you log into the app, put in some basic details, and we'll ping off messages to the companies and track their pensions and come back and say, here's the value, here's what the projection is, and you can transfer it into one scheme so you can have everything on your phone in one place. And it makes it much easier to manage going forward. So. That's what Penny are doing. They've been really successful over the past sort of year or two. They've got a pretty sick app and they've received some good funding. They've had about four million pounds in funding. Some of that's from Google's uh, Gradient Ventures, which is a very good sign. And also Tom Blomfeld, who was one of the founders or founders at Monzo. So that's good assurance that credible companies and individuals are backing them. So it's going to be super interesting. There's a lot going on in the pension space in the next sort of 12 months with things like dashboards and open data, et cetera. Mm, so it's yeah. going to be an interesting one to see what, what develops. And then also Stratify, that's another company we work with. So the guys there are creating an investment app. And it, basically the aim of it is to try and help democratize trading. So giving individuals some of the tools that perhaps only professional investors, traders had access to in the past. 
but a fraction of the cost. And they're, they're at a different part of the journey. So they've developed the minimum viable product, so to speak. They've had investment, some investment. They're developing the app more. They're going through FCA authorization process at the moment. And they're hoping to launch in the next few months or so. So they're kind of just sort of building up to that, that stage where they're going to launch. So they're doing a bit of market research to understanding the pricing model, where to price it, who it sits with, what the right type of client is. And that all in itself is really valuable. There's huge, there's lots of stats about the number of founders that don't go out and do that, don't go out and speak to potential clients that don't understand the product, but either because they're just so in their head, they've just developed a solution that everyone's uh, going to want and others because they don't want to hear someone say, actually, what we've developed isn't quite right or it's it's going to flop. So it's good that they're going out and doing that. And anyone that's starting up a new business, new proposition, you should always do tons and tons of market research, refine your product, make sure you know who you're targeting, make sure you've got the costings right, how you're going to launch it, et cetera. So it's going to be super interesting to see the Stratify app launch in the, in the coming months. I think it'll be a really interesting and useful app. And then one of the other companies I'm working for, which is slightly different to that it, because it's more consultancy-based, is Behind Login. So Ollie, Ollie Lane came in, did a talk for you guys. Um, Behind Login is basically a competitor research and analysis company. So that came about, Ollie used to work at Harpoo Sandstone. He used to um, manage one of the mobile teams. Um, so his job is to make sure that the HL app was always market leading, had all the right tools, all the right features. It was hard to get all the information. It's hard to compare across the market. I mean, you go back maybe, say, 10 years ago. I had this problem when I was head of pensions seven or eight years ago, where you're trying to compare your proposition to the rest of the market. And at that time, you might be looking at maximum of 10 different providers you're trying to track down. Now, it's 20, it's 30, it's 40. And trying to see what their mobile journeys are like is a lot of work. It's, it's a team in itself. So what Behind Login does is it compares the market for you. So it looks at what new features are, are coming out. It looks at particular parts of the journey, whether that's onboarding, whether that's uh, transfers, taking money out. So yeah, they've been going for about a year now. And it's really interesting to see them develop a proposition and launch into new market segments as well. Mm. Yeah, that's great to hear. Um, actually, then I'm curious about, because uh, going back to Penny then, actually, we were going to talk about this eventually mm -hmm. about the lost pensions. So we saw in the yeah. news there's like about nearly 27 billion pounds that was just lost. And you said Penny is the solution here. They're trying to track down all these lost pensions for people. Then is, is that all Penny does? Or can you, as like a regular person coming into pensions, just very new, can I sign up onto Penny and then apply there as well? Yeah, so it's on our roadmap. So at the moment, um, we were focused on tracing and tracking down all pensions, putting consolidating them into one place to make it easier to manage. Um, and that creates a light bulb moment in the user's head because mm. they basically say, right, actually, I thought I had nothing. I've got three, four, five, £10,000. Now I want to do something with it. And it's that next part of the journey that we're going to be working on. So how to make additional contributions, how to make monthly payments, what you do when you get to retirement, how to take the money out and adding more tools and functionality around it. So adding tools, projection tools, so you can play around and see how much you need to pay in, what the effect of that is and more options in terms of investment. So all of those things definitely on the roadmap, Jerry. So yeah, keep an eye on it. Yeah, <laughs> I might be using the app at some time then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Right, moving on then. So I believe you've worked with FinTech West, if I'm not mistaken, with Stuart, the director. How's that been like? Yeah, that's been that's been great fun. So I've been involved in FinTech West for about four years now. 
And it was really just that sort of just going along to events, knocking on doors and someone, someone, Briss was quite good for that, making introductions into different people. And someone said to me, look, if you're interested in fintech, you need to speak to Stuart Harrison. And at the time, I think we had Bristol Fintech and then Stuart took that over, rebranded it as Fintech West. And I think I joined just as he was launching and we hosted that launch at Harku Sandstand at the time. So kind of been involved since then. And Fintech West is basically a, a, a network or region, part of regional national network, sorry, promoting Fintech in the Southwest of the UK. So you have Fintech North, Fintech Scotland, Fintech Ireland, Wales, et cetera. And Fintech West is the body representing it in the Southwest. So at the moment, it's actually, it's absolutely booming. So it's it's been growing year on year. I think we've got more than 120 recognized fintech companies in the region at the moment. It was great that last, I think it was last week or the week before, Jeremy Hunt actually called out Bristol as a fintech cluster or somewhere identified it as a, as a cluster for fintech in the UK and an area of growth. So there's lots going on in the, in the region that's good to be part of it. What about the Southwest here that makes it so interesting that yeah, for, for people to come in and see that this is a fintech growing growing fintech cluster? Like what, what about it makes it very incentivizing rather? I think it's probably a few things. So one, you've got a great educational system. So you guys know that, um, hopefully. <laughs> but between the two universities, Bristol and Bar sorry, Bristol, University of Bristol and, and University of West England, uh, just in Bristol itself would be more on it uh, outside of Bristol, but just focusing on those two. You've got over three hundred students graduating in fintech related topics in the next year or so, a mixture of fintech MSc, data science, etc. So there's lots going on. I think we've got a very collaborative cluster here in terms of people wanting to support and help it grow. So we have an advisory board here. At fintech west and we have about 15 different organizations all working on that supporting growth in the regions that's pwc money hub NatWest, rocket both universities we have things like the bristol technology festival which is an annual event that helps promote fintech and we've got incubators like the engine shed and organizations like TechSpark, all of whom are working with us to help promote fintech in the region so there's loads going on we have different events going on all the time so we've got blockchain i know later, open banking, fintech for good, all of these things going on. It's just a growing momentum in the region. You can just feel there's more and more coming out of it. More mm. companies wanted to come here and start up. I think we had EY just launched a new sort of um, consultancy business here focusing on fintech. Mm. So yeah, lots going on. You've also, if you stretch a bit further afield, you have a big cyber cluster in Cheltenham, around the Golden Valley develop, development there. And if you go further south, you've got Exeter University doing a lot in the blockchain space as well. So good variation of skills, talents, and all of that will attract, will attract more investment and more partnerships. That's great. That's really good. Yeah. Do you believe FinTech West here or Bristol can eventually compete with London? I think it's always going to be hard to, to compete directly with London just because there's so much resource on the doorstep and London's done, done a great job of becoming the FinTech capital of the world. So that, that's always going to be tricky. And I think what the aim of the national network and regional organizations, FinTech West, Scotland, Wales, et cetera, is to do is to make people say, actually, it doesn't all have to be in London and we can help support London. We can help people coming to the UK to say, there's loads going on in London, so it's going in Scotland, so it's going in Wales. It's just a great place to be. And you can connect with all those regional networks, whether you're in London, Wales, Scotland. So I don't think it's to compete directly with them. It's just to help grow FinTech throughout the UK in general. And if that's in the West, that's great. If it is in Scotland, fantastic. But let's make sure that all of us work together. Have there been any sort of like 
new policies coming out. I remember a steward talking about this to us is about the CFIT program um, to help increase funding for fintech startups as well. Has there been any others? Yes, yeah, so CFIT was um, one of the recommendations of the CLIFA report. So the CLIFA report was, I think that came out in um, 2021. 20, that's it, yeah, 2021. Mm-hmm. And that was a report that was run by Ron Khalifa, and the name the CLIFA report. Mm-hmm. And it basically came out with five recommendations, and they were around improving policy and regulation skills, investment, international uh, investment, and also national connectivity. So, yeah, I think CFIT, so that's the Center for Finance, Innovation, Technology, was one of those key recommendations. And pretty timely that you mentioned that, because that's now about to be launched. So mm-hmm. they've just taken on a, a chair, and that's Charlotte Croswell, who has a huge amount of experience in fintech and the industry, um, used to be chair of the Open Banking Implementation Entity, I believe, and mm-hmm. also taken on a new CEO. And that's all about to launch in the coming months. I think there's a launch event on the 28th of February, worth checking out. Basically, the idea behind CFIT, sorry, to sort of track back slightly, is to bring um, technologies together from across the UK to come up with some of the what are the challenging solutions or issues facing fintech firms. So that might be, for example, how to scale, how to collaborate, nationally, regionally, uh, how financial innovation can promote sustainability, financial inclusion. I mean, that's a big, big outcome from fintech is about improving financial inclusion. So the idea behind it is it's like a central governance that, or central way of everyone coming together and working together to create better outcomes for individuals. So 28th of February, that's going to be launched in Leeds. So worth, worth checking out and worth following. What what area of technology do you believe is like pretty underutilized at the moment in terms of fintech? So there's things such as AI and blockchain, then uh, obviously open banking. So or, or any other uh, technologies that you believe could be still has its potential realized? Yeah, I think I mean depending on your views, you could probably say all of those. Um, <laughs> I've I'm still I mean I'm not uh, not against blockchain for it. I've just not seen any great working examples. They're really sort of knocked me off my chair so far. That's not to say I don't believe that that's that's going to come. I've just not seen it so far. But I think there's lots of space potential there still for for more to come through there. Um, AI, I won't go into that. There's all kinds of stuff going on in AI at the moment. But yeah, there's obviously huge potential there. Opportunities, risk, threats, etc. There's but yeah, how businesses are going to are going to use that for marketing for you know ensuring that what's the information that's being sent to clients and client understanding there's huge ethical issues there as well and mm. um, i think open banking is an interesting one because it kind of it feels like open banking kind of spurred on a lot of the fintech growth in the uk um when it was first announced because of all the different opportunities that it could potentially potentially offer and i don't think everyone feels like it's been a success it was meant to be as yet i think Amboden. Um, from Starling was probably the most vocal in saying it's been a bit of a flop. I'm not sure that is the case, but I think there's definitely a lot more scope there. So I think in the UK, we've got about 200 companies that are sort of working in what's um, the open banking space. So that's like budgeting tools. So you've got Snoop, who do things like subscription management. You've got Credit Kudos, who uh, look at your credit scores, who were recently bought by Apple as well. But I think whilst the UK was seen as leading the race into, in open banking. It's kind of, it now feels like it's fallen behind. I'm not sure the reason why, perhaps it's because the incumbents are slow to adopt or feel that you know it's going to take a, a, a bite out of some of their 
profits or you know customer base. But I think it's inter- it's going to be an interesting one to watch because I think we've got six million um, active users in open banking now in the UK, which is great. But then countries like Brazil have got five million, and they started way after us. Um, Australia seems to be the country to watch and leading the way on this. But there's huge potential there around open banking, open data, and how an individual's data can be used to help create better outcomes, better decision making. Um, and I'm someone that's, even though I've been in this industry for years, I, I'm kind of lazy. So I just want a system, a process that makes my investments for me, make sure I've used my tax records. I don't really want to have to go and make those decisions myself. Mm. switching whether that's switching utilities or whatever if that can all be done for banking to data and open data in the future then that that's absolutely great and actually in in bristol we've got a real sort of um market leader in in money hub so money hub market leader in uh sort of open banking open data expanded beyond financial services now but they did a, did an example recently where they worked with vodafone they had a partnership with vodafone and they were looking at users who were perhaps vulnerable or low income and they basically tapped into their accounts with their permission to, so that they could identify benefits that were being paid by local councils or government etc and, and by just matching those benefits that was then identified as someone that was of low income or vulnerable etc so by doing that, Vodafone could then say, well, we are going to offer you a low-cost fixed tariff because we understand it's a cost of living crisis and we want to help support those customers that need it. Mm-hmm. Previously, people were sending in photocopies of bank statements uh, and other, which is cumbersome, high risk, slow, probably people couldn't be bothered to do it. Whereas just by giving them access to the banking details, Vodafone can create a better outcome for their for their users. It's a good experience for the client as well. Or for the user at the other end as well. So I think there's a lot, there's so many different examples where open banking, open data can be used in a positive way to create really good outcomes for individuals. What would you advise for, um, for many people out there who don't really have a clear idea what to do with their pensions? Should they go ahead and invest them or should I keep them around in them? Well, that is a big question. And there's a multitude of answers to that. And all of them, mm. I would caveat with saying, this is not financial advice. Um, <laughs> I, I, okay. I imagine most of the people listening to this post, this podcast, they're probably younger. So um, they probably don't have too much in pension savings. I'd say look, just engage with, when you start a new job, when you start your first job after uni, you will be offered a pension. Um, so make sure you understand it, you know who it's with, and you just stay engaged with it. And make sure when you move jobs, you take it take that information with you and if you want to then transfer it to your company's new scheme you consider that there's lots of things to consider but i would say the main thing is just engage in it um you don't have to be talking about it in the pub because look, let's face it, it's more interesting things to be talking about <laughs> but do under do understand who it's with how much you're paying in and where it's invested and the point about where it's invested as well is quite quite interesting there is actually a lot of work going on now in terms of pull all these investors together, the amount of money invested in pensions. Actually, you invest in companies where you can have a say, you can have a vote in how they operate. And it's a company in Bristol, it's Mellow. We're doing a lot around sort of shareholder investor activism through that voting system. So take an interest in it, but also take an interest in where the money is invested because it's pulled together and can actually make positive or negative impact in the world and society. So it can actually be quite interesting in terms of the power that it then has. Thank you. And uh, I have one last question. With the years of about 20 over years in, in the pension industry, how much more innovation can there be done in the pension industry? 
loads. aside from the tracking loads yeah loads there's so much that can be done we go back to sort of open data open banking before imagine if you had access to to someone's all their account information i could see exactly how much spare income you had at the end of each month i could make predictions about you putting that into a pension putting it into another investment option an isa or a license whatever was most suitable for you and there's a lot going on at the moment about um trying to automate or robo advice is, is what it's called. So there's all kinds of tools that you could use and develop, but it's, it's a real balance between regulation, technology, best outcomes for the individual. So there's, there's loads that could be done in answer to your question, but anything that is done to make it easier to engage, easier to understand, and just, you know, creates a better, more positive outcome for clients. So that's, that's the key, but yeah watch this space there's lots of potential there and more and more companies getting are seeing that it is a huge market and there's that technology and different ways of working can uh, create better solutions that's um definitely something to look out for in the future then so and i think uh unfortunately that might be all the time we have so i think we're going to wrap up now uh, once again thank you so much david for coming on to our podcast as our first guest uh, it's been an enlightening session with you. We learned a lot, quite a bit about pensions as a whole, and then also about how you uh, transition from your career into fintech. So for all listeners out there, if you want to learn more about David Henderson, uh, Fintech West or Penny, you can always find him on LinkedIn or the Fintech West and Penny websites. Thank you very much for listening to the first episode. Uh, this is Jerry and Gerald from the UE Fintech podcast, and we hope to see you in the next one.